0: great to see so many people here. It's always a joy when Venerable Matea is passing through New York. I think this is his third or fourth visit here. And we're lucky to have him here, if even for a short evening. Venerable Matea was born in Lumbini, which is the birthplace of the Buddha in Nepal. And when it comes to engaged Buddhism uh, he kind of epitomizes it. He's been a monk in the Theravada tradition for eight years, but he's well-schooled in the other traditions as well, the later traditions. And uh, I have to put on my glasses here. Your writing is so small. He is the founder of the Metta Schools, the Peace Grove Nunnery, the Karuna Girls College, and the Bodhi Peace Institute in Lumbini, and he's only 28. So he's going to talk tonight on the challenges of practicing ancient Dharma in the contemporary world, which is a really beautiful topic, so welcome.
1: Namaste everyone, it is a deep joy and delight for me to be back again in New York City. As is strange as it may sound for a Nepali monk, when people ask me what is your favorite place in the world, I have found myself in really awkward position perhaps so unbefitting of a monk but I always remember New York City
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I try and find reason why is it the beautiful park or is it the high-rise buildings I don't know fully yet what the connection is. But very often I always think it must be the people, the wonderful people that I have come to know and meet here. Especially to come to here, to this Dharma Center, is a great emotional experience for me. Because since childhood in Nepal, I have read about America. A lot of teachers from my land, a lot of teachers from India, Nepal, they all came here for the last several decades, almost several centuries. And I had been reading about all these places. When I travelled to this part of the world for the first time, This was the place where I was invited for the first time to represent Dhamma. I think until I become completely liberated, this emotional attachment might remain. (laughs) Amongst monks they got to have their attachments too. I'm learning a lot last several years. I have been traveling to mostly Canada, passing through here. In a way, it has been a speculative journey for me, a reflective journey for me. And I'm still going through the process to try and understand, try and see what is there that I could could perhaps offer to the world. And in the process, I'm learning many things. Sometimes I feel I'm learning more than I'm teaching, actually. One of the things, one of the new things that I have learned while coming to North America is the smartphones. (laughs) And whenever you install an application in there, the first thing they ask you about the terms and conditions. And I love this beautiful culture of honesty and being outright there. So following this modern culture, I would like to put forth the conditions. I would like to make it clear that I do not promise that at the end of today's Dharma gathering, you will become enlightened. <laughs> if it happens, wonderful. But I won't be held accountable if it doesn't. Some of you from here have reached out to me last several years and I apologize if I have not been accessible through emails. I have not been taking personal students, consider myself still a student, so I apologize for that. I am very grateful that you thought of me and reached out. I have received some questions, and believe me, I intend to answer them, but it just takes a little longer in monastic time. Remember, Buddhists, we talk about eons and samsaras in the world, so for us, a few minutes, few days could be a few years. But we, we will get there, we'll answer it. I arrived here just a few days ago and before coming here I had a short and lovely visit to one of our sister Dharma centers here, run by a very lovely friend of ours, Alan Locus. You must have heard about his story. I met him before his accident, a couple of years ago, and I saw what he was like. After the accident meeting last week, week, it was such a beautiful delight for me to see the Dhamma in action. Dhamma growing roots here and now in this land, in this context is such a lovely, inspiring example. So I experience in my heart a deep sense of gratitude to the teachers who have done beautiful work here. I don't know if Sandra is here, but I often think of her, that it was people like her who thought to establish centers. People like John here, Sabine, and others who volunteered all the time to make it happen. It's a beautiful experience. Today, I will talk a little bit about my journey and my effort to try and be as open, receptive, as genuine as I can to this very ancient path of Gautama the Buddha. But yet try and live in this world without sounding and looking like a foolish Zen master riding a cow or heading to the mountains. And some of the insights that I have found that has helped me And I hope in the very process, I will get to share some of your insights, some of your thoughts. For a Dharma teacher, it's always a very difficult moment to talk Dharma without knowing the person one is talking to deeply. In fact, at the time of Buddha, Buddha was a man of rules. He always had his terms and conditions always handy, always ready. Even for the Dharma talk, if you would read the terms and conditions for Dharma talk, is forbidding in so many ways. A monk could not give a Dharma talk unless he was asked. Could not give Dharma talk to someone who is standing in such-such way, wearing such-such hat, doing such-such thing. And the intention behind this was that we don't dump unnecessary teaching that may not be skillful, may not be benefiting to the person. Because Buddha was very pragmatic. His approach was that there are dharmas, every little action could be a lesson, could be a dharma. But what is the true Dharma? is the one that works, the one that helps one where they are. If you read through his words in Dhammapada, very often he says, rather than reciting thousand mantras and verses, it's better to recall one word that brings peace and understanding. So it's a bit a scary situation for a Dharma teacher to, to be aware when we are not imposing. And also, when someone is just visiting through, passing through, it's a short visit. It'd be much nicer if it was a tea party. I don't mean the political kind.
0: <laughs>
1: so I, I hope to see this opportunity as, as an evening that will get to sit together, discuss some of ideas of me as a practitioner, as all of you are, as a seeker that you are. And towards the end, I do hope to, uh, I remember always, whenever I give Dhamma talks, I try to remind myself I tend to talk really long. This is a Nepali thing. So I I will try and save some time towards the end so that we could exchange some thoughts. A Buddhist monk is a strange thing, a very enigmatic thing. In a way, a Buddhist monk doesn't look like it belongs in today's world. So a lot of people, they write me all the times, asking about what a Buddhist monk's life is like. And I always smile that there is so much curiosity in people. Sometimes I wonder if they are just writing so that if they find out it's harsh and tough, then they can back out before ordaining. (laughs) Or what? So there is always a curiosity, what is a Buddhist monk's life like? I can't tell you the rest of my days, it will be a really long story, but I, I would like to tell you today's story, what my day has been like shortly. First of all, since I arrived here, I thought I would become American. So in my childhood, I used to read a lot of books, a lot of books on Dharma and philosophy and our Eastern ideas. And eventually, it became so tiring, it became so repetitive that I gave it up. So I thought it's a Western thing to do is to read when they go. So I've been reading the story of Al's book. I started reading it when I was flying here, so that was a terrible idea. <laughs> but today you might wonder what a secret book I have been reading. I thought I will show it to you. And please don't judge me. <laughs> I found a book at my kind guardian's home The funniest thing is it gave me so much joy spontaneously. <laughs> not, not even the Bisuddhi manga, the greatest tritay in Theravada, from the greatest master had even brought me. It was a Zen moment of laughter. <laughs> because the funny thing is, I have a beautiful little furry friend at my guardian's home. So if you see some hair on me, please do <laughs> pardon. Whenever I sit to meditate or rest, he always likes to sit by and climb all over. And I don't know what's with these robes, but they, they attract all the hair on it. <laughs> so I've been thinking. And when I saw the title, it was just so funny. <laughs> and last several years, I've been trying to understand, what are we trying to do? the Western world, today's civilization, as a, as a member of today's contemporary world, what are we trying to do looking and digging into Buddha's word? And I think we are trying to outsmart the samsara. In a way, outsmart our own brain, that's what we are looking away to. It was funny because when, traditionally when we talk about Dharma, we always say it's training the monkey mind. The hardest, hard fact is that monkeys are sometimes not totally trainable. They can be trained up to a certain degree. So maybe outsmarting is a better idea. So I, I just thought you should see what uh, funny things monks read sometimes, because not many monks are that generous to share this. Tr- <laughs> <laughs> so now with that taken care, um, we can begin the serious part, I mean, a little bit about Dharma. In my childhood, I was born, and very fortunately now I feel, in those days it was a trouble, that I was given such a context, was exposed to so many diverse ideas about philosophy, about meaning of life, about truth in general. Born in a Hindu family. And now when I look at it, it reminds me of like the little mini Kumbh Mela of ideas in my family. My father following a very good follower Vedanta, Grandmother she had nothing to do with Vedanta she said that's path for all the intellectual insane people she believed in the bhakti marga, the devotional path my grandfather he thought the best way was through the mantras and one of my uncle complete paradox parabolically so opposite of them he was a matted hair yogi smoked marijuana walked everywhere on foot he couldn't tell time If you ask what time is it, he says it's just time. (laughs) I was so exposed to it, and he was right. (laughs) Because it sounds really, when I talk about my uncle, it brings some strange memories, and I am very grateful for him because of him I got exposed to so much marijuana in my childhood. but don't take me wrong, I've never tried it. <laughs> I never had to. But my nose has been trained so much, I could smell it a mile away, so to say. <laughs> I've been walking down the town, sometimes I'm with my Dharma mother, and I can smell it. And sometimes I wonder what's wrong with me, what kind of things I'm levitating towards. <laughs> so getting exposed to these people, at the childhood, and also, I feel very fortunate that these were some of the most sincere people I got to know in my childhood. My father, when we talked about Vedanta, he didn't just defend it, he tried to explain to me why it feels right to him and why he is doing so. And my grandmother's logic was really exactly working for her. But it was a trouble for me because nobody gave me a clear answer. But getting exposed to that at the young age, perhaps, was a blessing that I found out later on. It made me to learn the art of critical thinking, which was a terrible burden to bear because when I came to Dhamma, the teachings of Buddha, it may sound so funny because, as you heard, I was born just 500 meters outside the area where Buddha was born. But yet, in my childhood, that was our ancestral property, uh, temple. My grandmother, every once a year, she has to take me, and all my brothers and sisters and everyone to get the blessing from the mother of the temple, the Buddha's mother, Maya Devi. This was our ancestral family, but knew nothing about Buddhism. Knew nothing about the Buddha's teaching, the Dharma, the meditation. It was in... Grade six that I got exposed to, the teachings. When I met my teachers, it was quite a few years of a struggle for me. I began to wonder, is this right? Is this true? And the problem with this is that you would never know unless you tried and the critical thinking mind wants to know something before it tries. Oh, it took me many years of his struggle, but very fortunately, I got exposed to meditation. A very kind, kind, one of the most wonderful, lovely nun, who tutored me in my childhood, she knew all my mental itch, and so she directed me towards meditation, she was one of the assistant teachers of Kazi. So even in young age, he took us to Kathmandu, where Goenkasi's center is there, and he was guiding a retreat. And very fortunately, he got exposed to the meditation. And slowly and slowly and slowly, things begin to sink in. And I became a monk. That's the short version of the story. But even from that day, I have often thought about. Because apart from my personal journey, my personal spiritual search, I'm also a social worker in community. I work with the children's. I see so much suffering and pain in our society existing at the same time. So much unnecessary misery and suffering existing just because we don't have proper system to teach about health and well-being to the children, and mothers, and the families. And it made me question certain things. And I have always wondered, what is the relevance of Buddhist monasticism? What is the relevance of all these ideas the Buddha presented? Critically thinking, does it have something substantial and solid to offer us today, Or are we just merely carrying a cultural remnant? And I have always tried to think about it deeply. And sometimes we need to think in such a way. We need to think in such a critical way because from this special vantage point, certain things start to appear. Since you are all experienced meditators, meditating with you, so delighted. I thought, oh, how lovely, now I can talk all about, all about the serious stuff. But also because now you have been practicing meditation, and I'm sure you have way more access to texts and Dharma teachers, etc. So I believe we don't need to discuss the basic fundamentals of dharma or meditation. What I would like to bring into conversation today is that we we know the beginning of tentative Buddhist idea, or tentative way of thinking about reality. Buddha very often starts the conversation by discussing dukkha. Suffering. Oh, I love to talk about this. It's such a powerful wand it can scare even any stubborn mind into submission. Especially in Asia. (laughs) We have very often thought that we practice Dharma because suffering is there. But there is a different way to look at it which i came to discover later on that it was not always like that one way our culture understood this first noble truth is that there is a noble part of this suffering has many faces one of them is something that makes us noble. And that noble aspect is that whenever there is suffering in life, any form, any degree, what it really means is that you have not yet arrived in life. Go on. Move on. One of the saddest thing that happened with Buddha's tradition of wisdom is that we only remember somewhat of the stories of the Buddha that got left with us. But the people who came after Buddha were like us, who were like other person. How they applied this, how they made these insights work for them, that got lost. Some pieces here and there, they survived. Today's world, whatever we receive, their outcome of works that happened over 1,000, 1,300 years after Buddha. All the texts and the treatises we read, they came, they survived from a special era when texts and teachings were moving out of India to China Burma, Sri Lanka, Tibet. There is one beautiful text. No one knows exact date, but the Buddhist scholars in the world they agree that it's it's one of the early, early era texts. Perhaps not too far away from the time of Buddha, a wonderful monk. Acharya Ashwagosha and he wrote the biography of Buddha but this man was a poet when he comes to give a Dharma talk people have written there's a beautiful stone carving found of someone who heard his Dharma talk and was so touched And he tells about the experience, that when this person talked, gave dharma talk, it was not mere transmission of information, like riding New York subway and getting direction where to go and how to get there, but rather it was an experience. And this man, when he wrote in one of the texts, Buddha Charita, as a young Buddhist student, I said, oh yeah, exactly he's going to talk about now, the suffering. So he talks about the life of Buddha. The Buddha was born as a prince, Siddhartha had a royal family, was raised, etc, etc, and then he got married, he had a child, he had everything you could imagine for and then came the Dukkha, that's the normal tradition. A very much like modern western history, <laughs> midlife crisis kind of thing. <laughs> but this Ashwagosha, he had a different version altogether and he said he, he just left it he says then since buddha thought everything is there it's all set for He says, young prince siddhartha he heard a mysterious call a haunting music they couldn't trace where it comes from and i said huh what is this i was so confused what is he trying to do and remember buddhist monks one of the first vows we know Sometimes human beings could be really a little too poetic, a little too liberal. So Buddha knew all about these terms and conditions, and even after he was gone, he wanted to hold his patent rights. So we, before we become a member of Sangha, we have to say, I won't lie, I won't cheat, I won't tell something which is not true. So how how could this person write something which he knows that will be scrutinized by many teachers and practitioners, and it has to hold true? and yet confidently, boldly, he writes beautifully, he says he heard such a mysterious call and he knew that it's time to go and search for, that there is something missing. It was a beautiful moment for me when I realized. It has a different view. Normally when we study Buddha's teaching, the emphasis is to a lot of people, we arrive to the Dhamma thinking, oh, this is a path that will help me from suffering of the human life, it will help me from stress, it will help me from this, that, or maybe it will help me manage my anger a little bit, a little bit patience when I'm lining up for my Starbucks or something. We come with these ideas in a way to escape the suffering, and when you study the text, it does look like that's the promise. But there is a side of it that is beyond the promise, lure, desire, and the fulfilment. But it's closer to the reality of life. It's closer to the meaning of life. It takes a different look, and it says why the misery is there, why the dukkha is there. And that is a very important view to 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 have. Buddha's insight is that no matter how no matter how resourceful how rich a person is that he can try and eliminate all kind of suffering he could try and have as much money to secure every kind of insurance in the life but yet he cannot prevent the dukkha to arise why because life the way it evolves it seems to have a different momentum it wants to go on it wants to evolve it wants to grow and it won't let you rest and this is really cruel in a way but the force of life is such is that something will crop up Maybe a dissatisfactoriness sometimes, lose of interest. In any form or other, it will crop up. All it is telling you is your journey is not fulfilled as a human being. Go on, move on, grow. Buddha's If we try and summarize the Buddha's teaching and insight, he has a vision as well of the Dhamma. In general terms, I like to interpret it for our friends that overall, Buddha means to approach truth. The question of truth, the question of reality was of great importance to him. Because from the young childhood, when he got education to become a ruler, a king, back then in India, to become a ruler, you had to prove to the people that you are the most wise one, that you are the most learned one. You didn't need big muscle power, you could hire army. You had to prove that you have something worth that other citizens will honor you for, that wise people will stand up for you. So, as a drawback of that is that he had to learn all different philosophies and ideas that existed. And sometimes I think, like me, uh, as I was confused in my childhood, he has been, he must have been so confused with these so many different. Parallel philosophies, ideas about truth and the meaning of life existed. Even after when he gave up his life of prince, wandered through India for seven years, he wasn't just wandering and practicing in the, in the forest. He wasn't just being the 5th century BC hippie either. He, he was really going to the philosophers of that time. He was going to the meditators he was going to the people who were visionaries and asking them what is that you know what have you understood what have you made of this life in this world all this and he says so eloquently so many times he repeats in his suttas he says that there were 18 different philosophers whom he was so inspired from but yet remember there are 18 different views how could they all be so true, and yet they, they are so opposite of each other? So he became very concerned and focused on one thing. What is the truth? What is reality? What is it actually? What we admire Buddha for is, is that his great patience, that he didn't give up. Buddha says so well that there were so many people who were so attached to the external ideas. They saw how hard Buddha was searching, how hard he was practicing. They were ready to accept him as one of the greatest philosophers in India, even before he got enlightened. But he did not give in. He says, no, no. I haven't found anything yet. I have not understood. So we deeply admire him for that capability, for that mental strength. When finally he understood what he says, My eyes have opened in a truth, such a form of truth that I could not encounter before, I could not see. Ah, it solves everything. Now every piece is the fit in the right place. Uh, so liberating, and he began to teach. If we ask what is Buddha teaching, people will say 'O oh, four noble truths, the eightfold noble path, the seven factors of enlightenment, ten bhumis of the Bodhisattva, and people thought that was not enough, so they invented many more, and there are so many bumis and whatnots. but one of the qualities of a Buddha is that. He can expound it, he can elaborate and define it, but he focuses on the essential too. Buddha's way of interpreting is that he said reality has two dimensions. I was talking similar matter with our group last time. I didn't have much time to elaborate, but here I would like to bring it a little bit in the conversation and maybe we can talk about it a little later and what you think. The Buddha's approach was that he saw reality in two different ways. He said said that the ultimate reality, it seems to have two different aspects. One he called Paramartha Satcha, the ultimate nature of things. And the other, he said, the other reality is the apparent reality that is born through our contact with the reality that this is in between one. And he did not say that the one, the ultimate reality is the one and this reality does not matter. He said he did not discount the other. He said they are both of equal importance. I often give examples to understand the ultimate reality, for example. We can take example of this mic. Its color, color is black, if someone were to ask what color is it. We'd say, obviously, it's black. But if we use our science, our wisdom, wisdom of humanity to understand and ask what its real color is, what is its ultimate color, even our today's science will say we don't really know. When I learned this fact, I was in grade six, and I was so shocked and I felt so cheated. I learned while studying a a topic on light and prism. I learned that this particular color, this particular object, seems to have some kind of physical property, that it can absorb every other rays, every other six rays, and reflects back the black one. And our eye perceives it, that's why it's black. So I asked my science teacher, then what color is it really? I said, don't know. Looked around all my flowers and everything, and I was like, now I am not sure. They're all fooling us around. thing is, the Buddha says, the Dhammata, the ultimate property of things, they don't change. But the apparent reality is so moving, so changing, so dynamic, so fluid all that time. Apparent reality, for example, is a conditioned reality. For example, us perceiving it as black in color is apparent reality. That's how it appears to be. But it depends on the receptors behind our eyes that connects to the brain center. If some receptors were to, I don't know what, let backfire or go bad or something, we might not see it. We have colorblind people. That's the first thing I learned when I came to Canada. I had to go for a driving test. And I thought, really, there are colorblind people? We must have had them in Nepal, but I never heard. Nobody's there to diagnose. <laughs> So we know because it depends on so many conditions, it depends on our eyes, etc., our perception, it's reality changing. Buddha says that life walks in these two parallel lines. That on the surface, it appears to be the child that I am born, my mother, my father, loving family. Oh, like everyone else, I have to build up a carrier, to get a house, have a child, to this and that. But undercurrent of this, the primordial force of it, the ultimate force of it is something so different. But they work simultaneously. Buddha says the ultimate reality, the paradox about it is it cannot be talked, cannot be described totally. But there are some marks, some, some of the visible signs that we can say, ha, this is the way it seems to function. Buddha says there are a couple of characteristics of ultimate reality that he says I have become very sure that I have observed everything changing but these things they seem to remain constant and he says one of the fundamental nature of ultimate reality is that it's constantly in a process it's constantly changing anicca Second, Characteristic of ultimate truth, Buddha said, is that because it changes, it's unsatisfactory, it's a momentary experience. You cannot hold on to it, you cannot make sure that it will be there the next moment. The third, the most difficult one to penetrate, to understand, anatta, selflessness. He says these three are the characteristics of the ultimate thing, the fabric behind every apparent reality. says, like the projector projecting an image on the wall, and the child is playing, dog barking. Behind it is the projector and the screen, and the light, the current, the electricity, everything passing through. This is constantly changing. It's based on so many things. He says, this is the ultimate nature. We have known somewhere deep in our heart that this seems to be the real story of things, but we don't want to believe it, we don't want to acknowledge it. Why? Because it's the most boring version. When we watch a documentary or a movie or emotional drama on the wall, we get lost in this story. It gives us a sense of illusion. We cry when the character dies there. We just don't know he got paid millions to die on the screen and make us cry. (laughs) because we want to believe on something but the real story may not be as emotional the Buddha says the saddest thing is that's the hard fact the real story is there whether you believe it or not Buddha says the proper way to live is the middle path, majjima patipada. I know you have heard about middle, many various definitions of middle path, I believe. Some are, oh, you don't become the Hindu ascetic who stands up on his head and all these kind of thing. You don't indulge yourself totally. And maybe that's the middle path. This is a conventional definition. It helps. But then, how much to indulge and how much not to? There is really no middle path there. What Buddha intends is that you walk the fine balance where you are aware, mindful of the undercurrents of things. The unstable ground underneath. You know that as I am walking, things are changing. This is the way everything. You understand it, but yet you walk. Because life is here, opportunities are here, events are happening. And you participate, but with an awareness. The beauty of that is there are no accidents then. Because you would know this was bound to happen. Things change. It sounds so funny, but it is something worth trying. And Buddha said the the beauty of the Dharma is that it sounds so dry when it is explained. But it's so liberating once you try it. What I have tried to understand is if we go anywhere in any of these extremes, either the extreme of so-called ultimate truth, oh, that causes so much suffering, or if we try and avoid it as much, try and shelter ourselves from it, then it causes so much anxiety, restlessness, and pain and suffering. The human mind, if we look at it, it seems that the farther it is removed from any of this, causes suffering. Because when I came to learn about meditation, like a lot of you, perhaps when you started, I was so inspired, and I said, I have found the path. 10-day course, I'll be the Sotapanna. <laughs> and they have 20-day one. I know Guru- Guruji has said, normally they don't take younger kids, but my teacher knows, and Guruji knows me, so they will take me. 20 days, maybe I'll become a Sakidagami. <laughs> 30 days, ultimately, nirvana has to happen. <laughs> and yeah, I forgot to tell you, one of the beautiful most topic in that cat book was the nirvana of scratching. <laughs> that one I've never heard before. <laughs> so I was so fascinated, so fascinated with the Dhamma and with the meditation. I thought, this is it. I found the path. This is all I have to do, really. Watch, observe. Oh... Then the trouble happened because I really got the time to do it. Normally, the mind plays a game. It convinces, oh yeah, this is the path, you know it exactly, but you just don't have the right time yet. You got to do this, you got to do this, maybe it will happen one day. I spent, I took off with a terrible kid. My parents were not happy with me. I took off, starting my doing course after course and enjoying, but then I got in contact with the people who have been there for the last 20 years. And then I have done every kind of camp, every kind of course, and yet, tiny little things trigger them. And I said, what is happening here? And then finally he caught on to me then, okay, Goenka Kagurzi has been teaching everyone, this is the shortcut path to Nirvana, what about him? Why is he not in big rush? (laughs) The most beautiful thing that can ever happen on the path of Dhamma is to get close to a genuine Dhamma teacher. Not to his teaching or anything, but to him as a person. One of the trade-offs we have had in this new modern age is that everything has become so formalized. Like even going to these 10-day courses, when you go they they are Produce manufactured in a way so that a mass could understand something, gain out of it. But for an individual, it's a totally different matter. So fortunately, I got some time to spend with Gohenkazi in my childhood with Mataji and trying to talk. What are they doing? They are not they're smiling, they're laughing and they're joking on things. What is going on? You are not controlling your raga and doisha and aversion, and you're just smiling when it pleases you. What's going on here? Finally I learned what is it to really understand the Dhamma if we lean too much towards ultimate truth We say I have to go just to the ultimate I want to do nothing with this apparent samsara apparent reality Oh my I don't know what will happen at the end, but I found people become little bit cranky (laughs) 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 It's a growth even if you talk to Buddha He says, he did not advise the disciples to become enlightened now. Nothing doing. He says, grow, see the truth, work with it. Your heart will know when it's ready slowly, no extreme push necessary. A proper Dhamma life is not to take Dhamma too seriously. It sounds really funny, doesn't it? Especially from a Buddhist monk. But to see the ultimate nature to become aware of it and to investigate not just by belief But to really see whether this is true and Living a wonderful fulfilling life Making the best of this life that we can now. This is the middle path When I thought in this way when I Began to see slowly and slowly what he meant. Oh, he solved so many of my troubles. I was so angry with Buddha in the beginning. I, did, I confess nowadays, even I ask my pardon from my teacher. And I was so angry with him. He sounds so anti-life. Almost nihilistic. He says, I'm not nihilistic, but he talks about nihilism. So what is he trying to do? I begin to understand. He's talking about leading a wholesome life that is not divided and rift in two ways these two realities of life they work simultaneously there is no sheltering no escape from this It would be lovely Really, if someday we could find a solution, that we could stop change from happening. I don't know what would happen, but perhaps the life would be so boring. (laughs) Let's say if we did hack into this cosmic system, found a way to stop change from happening, then the Dukkha would perhaps be changed, then there would be no pain and suffering maybe. But then the third truth, the really tricky part, non-self will become the greatest misery ever. They would beg for the change to begin so that you can get away from this. This is the hardest part to understand, the trickiest, complex, most little, a cunning bond that has given rise to consciousness. We don't really know what it is but it is at the core. Buddha understood the human dilemma really well. Though we cry, we feel sad about suffering when it comes to life, but there is a part of it, it is the suffering, it is the change that makes you feel you are, gives you a sense of Atta, me, a person. And we so cling to it, we so cling to it. Try and do, live a life of one week without a change. I shouldn't really say this, but you can try and say, "I will for one week, I will blow all my savings. I will rent the most beautiful place, I will hire everyone, and for one week, I will not do anything, lie down in my room, had bed and breakfast and all that, and never leave. You'll find it will be miserable after four or five days. Because no change is happening, you, you will start losing a sense of who I am. And that is the most difficult thing to let go. But it says when someone walks the middle path, slowly and slowly observes life, observes the change happening in the life, observes the ground I am walking into is no, not substantial, it's always dynamic changing, but life somehow go, somehow goes on, slowly becomes aware of this last mind game, the concept of me. And this cannot be described, cannot be taught in words. But ultimately, when someone's understanding of truth matures, the last joke one gets it, one looks oneself in the mirror and say, hey, who was I? And that is the profound most place. It is not the meditation that will give us a state of nirvana or a state of freedom of mind. But it is the ability that someday if we can come back and see ourselves, it's one of the most liberating Ah. moments. Even a little glimpse of that is just so profoundly liberating. It just liberates your mind, gives so much charge in the heart. It's, ah. These are tricky subjects to, to communicate in words. One of the greatest saint of India, as well-known as Kabir. He he talked about it, he says, it's a language of dumb ones, cannot be spoken. Same man wrote another beautiful poem. Sometimes it's very funny that the most important things cannot be said in the words, but poetry helps. So this fellow, he wrote one of the funniest poetry, (coughs) And when I heard it from my grandmother in childhood, I did not understand. He says that he was walking down one day in the market. And he saw the whole samsara being grounded between the two layers of the mill. We call it janta in Nepal, chaki. In Nepal, still in the village, you can see, we don't have big mills and factories. We don't have trader joes where you can go and buy your supplies. So we take flour, wheat... And every family has a stone grinding mill or something. So we add a little bit of wheat to it and they rotate it and grind. Our grandmothers always do it. So he says he was walking down and he saw someone doing this. And he understood a picture of samsara. He saw that everyone who is in this samsara is being grounded to powder, to pulp, between these two layers of the ultimate and the conventional. We get captured in it. And he says, this is the Cosmic Dilemma, he was not too far from the Buddha's vision when he saw The only Powerful thing that liberates us from it is a clear understanding of this Clear view of this slowly becoming familiar with it slowly becoming friend with it and then there is no fear In my childhood, I have just a few minutes to finish, sadly. In my childhood, I remember one little point, one of my little mini-experiments. So I did not believe any of these things, Dharma, spirituality, whatnot And I said, if you want me to believe, to my teacher, show me a ghost, or one of those devas the Buddha talks about. Until I can see them, how would I believe after I die something is there? Nobody can answer such ridiculous question. So as childhood minds are, I was so foolish. So I said, I will go and experiment myself. And uh, in in Nepal, we have charnel grounds. We have special regions by the river, which is set for burning bodies, dead bodies. And from your grandmother to everyone you were taught, that place is for them. You don't go there. It's a special place for the ghost and everything. And I was told from everyone I knew, that place, if you go in the middle of the night, 12 o'clock, for sure you'll see a ghost or two. <laughs> there is no way to miss it. So <laughs> I remember when I was so frustrated, there was no answer. I was so desperate. I said, I will go. I sn- I snuck out of my house at 11 o'clock, fooling my parents that I'm sleeping, slowly and slowly walked down. I came close. It was about a kilometer and a half. I can see the place. So dark. few trees are here and there. And I began to tremble here. I'm shaking. I have not seen a ghost at all, but I'm shaking. What is happening? I go a little far and I'm perspiring in the, my breath. I said, I cannot do it anymore today. This is enough for now. So I would sit there half an hour, come back. Next day, again and again and again. One day, after a long trial, I was actually right at the burning ground. And I sat there and meditated, and no ghost. I was so disappointed came and started t- and then eventually came to me ha huh. I have seen the ghost my own fear and the beauty of that is, is this is how Dharma works next day when I went to my teacher my teacher was a very funny person so she wouldn't she was not very formal so she would make some tea and she said what do you want to study now so we plucked out a sutta book the Buddha Sutta and Buddha talks about his time when he was in a forest and this f- big forest, some leaps, something fell on the leaps and made such a sound. And he talks about fear arising in his mind. Buddha talks about this. Fear just arose in his mind. And he thought, to fled or face, what should I do? And he said, he followed the trail of awareness. How did I hear this sound? Where does it come from? How is it happening? And the, when he was able to put it all together, reflected for a moment, he realizes that leaf that's sticking over there. And he says, I got liberation from the fear. This is words of true understanding. He's not saying I got free from fear because I became the Buddha. He, he saw the very process of observation and understanding slowly, he got released. Perhaps one of the most beautiful promising, promises of this melodramic human life, it's, it's potential of freedom just by mere observation, mere awareness. But we have to work for it we have to develop this tendency I I do believe all of you have so much innate wisdom in you in our land we say the moment someone asks for water that is assured his thirst is thirsty the moment you even think about dharma, the Dhamma has been boiling in your heart he wants to grow the seed wants to evolve all of you when you seek are seeking the very elixir of human life. I, this is just a few moments of my presence sharing with you. It's deeply inspiring for me to see all of you taking out so much time, coming to the Dharma centers, learnings. Sadly, I cannot offer very much on such a short trip. Someday I would like to be back again, maybe tell a stories or two. I was thinking of telling a story today, but sadly there won't be much time and I would love to hear and see what's, what's happening. I wish you all the best. And if you have any thoughts, I believe we have a few minutes, so you could, thank you very much.
0: Just thank you so much. Um, I'll pass the mic for questions, but I just wanted to say one thing about apparent reality. Um, so one of the apparent realities is that All the work you do needs support. (laughs) And um, so all the Donna tonight will be going to all the organizations that the Venerable Matea supports. So as you leave and you see the boxes in back, know that all of that is going to support his work, which is following that middle path rather beautifully, I would say. So we have a few minutes for questions.
1: Hi, my name is Wendy. Uh, Thank you for coming. I really enjoyed your talk. I think it's very insightful, and then it really kind of answers some of the questions, pending questions I have about Dharma. So, my question is: um, You're talking about the apparent reality and the ultimate reality. So, to walk in the like a middle path. Can you just give me a, like an example in like our day to day life? What's the extreme, an extreme example of, of getting too close to the apparent reality and one that's like getting too close to the ultimate reality? So I can understand it a little bit better. Sure. Yeah, thank you so much. It reminds me of the, the limitation of such Dharma talks. That's so why very often we don't want to begin the topic because we can't do enough justice to such a profound matter. One thing that I wanted to cover on this part is that two, three things we should quickly observe is that truth, the ultimate truth, has been there since the very beginning of things, perhaps. Maybe, who knows, perhaps when the universe started, when the humans evolved things have been working that way, constantly changing, and now we can go to our astrophysics and others, and they will tell us things have been in fluid motion. But the humans, when we came, the apparent reality was born. The moment there was consciousness, this reality was born. What I wanted to bring into conversation today is that, a lot of time when we think about Buddhism, we often think that the Buddha's philosophy ultimately will offer every solution to the modern world today. Some of them do, some of them don't. Why so? It's not that they're false teachings. But remember, the apparent reality, conventional truth for the people 2,500 years ago, the way they understood, the way they interpreted the world was so radically different than ours. They did not have the smartphones, they did not have the Amazon deliveries and whatnot. So they could not talk about Amazon flying out of the sky and coming here. (laughs) They to talk about something so different that they would understand, that it would make sense. So if we carried all these bags and burden and said this should work, that is one extreme way to go into the conventional reality, clinging to the philosophies. Same with Hindu philosophies. Nothing wrong with them. That is their conventional reality of those particular masters, at that particular time in history when they understood the truth. What they knew is there is something that is so profound, so transformative, so deeply embedded in every fabric of universe. But this is how they understood. And if we want to carry that, then we would end up being hippies and sing all day on the road, Hare Krishna's and Hare Rama's. At the end, we'll be tired and nothing will be in our hand, Not even the basic stream entry, maybe. So this is not to get caught in this. But, however, there is a mundane part of this. Similarly with the life the very moment someone has a son, has a daughter, gives a birth, one's attitude changes. There is a a dynamic change one becomes a mother. That's an apparent reality. You're not a different person, but you are a different mother, person, but not to get too caught up in it. I've seen so many mothers, they fight and make the life of their children so miserable out of love. Because they get attached as a mother, and then even when he's 20-year-old, 25-year-old, and he has a, a wife or a girlfriend, he wants to move on, the mother doesn't want to let him go. Because he's so caught up in that apparent reality. Or maybe when he's caught up in the apparent reality that I'm the little child of my father, and won't evolve into the mother or somebody's wife. So many, You can get caught up in every little corner, really. It's really funny. If you if we don't see it, we can get caught up going on the street and somebody's singing, dancing, you can get caught up in there. But if we keep constant mind, oh, my life is there, it moves on, if I don't go now, I will miss my train. So it's okay, I have to go, I like this music, I will hear for a second, but I have to go on. So you have to sort of find the fine balance between. The other extreme of getting caught up in this philosophy is to, to go to the extreme and start thinking like the Matrix movie. <laughs> is this world even real? Is this Dhamma practice even real? Do I even have to meditate? And then you're entered in the other extreme, and that is the worst one. This apparent reality getting caught up in that is a form of addiction. You'll bounce off. There will be some moment when you'll hit the wall and realize, i got to come back. But if you enter the other kind, there is no wall. It's just infinite loop. So that one is a little bit more cautious, too. To follow the middle path is to think about life and say, I know that there are certain sides of life that I don't know, I'm not aware, I should learn, discover. These are certain changing things in my life and I will take care of this. I believe we have to listen to our own innate wisdom. Sometimes we need little inspiration, we can read a little bit, talk to our Dharma teachers, Dharma brothers and sisters here, discuss with them, learn from their insight, but ultimately we have to find the middle path, I believe. Thank you very much for your answer.
0: Hello. Wow, hot mic. Thank you very much. I was curious about how you came to choose Theravada Buddhism.
1: I know that there are many uh, types of Buddhism practiced in Nepal. And so how did did you come to choose that path? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two sides of it. On the conventional level, I'm Nepali, I'm a Theravada, I'm Asian, and all these things. But when I see deeply in my heart, really, one of those terms and conditions I read in the beginning, the second one that I didn't tell you about was, was, my heart was wanting to say that I am not an advocate of Buddhism. Really I'm not. I'm a person. This way of life suits me so much that I don't have to define to someone. When I meet somebody, anyone in the world, we're always asking for a level. Are you Asian? Are you Western? Are you here? Are you straight? Are you okay? Are you sane, insane? We always ask about it. When someone sees a monk, everything settles down to few things. He's a weird monk, (laughs) maybe to that. So it's my personal choosing. But also, when I look deeply in my heart, the things have been given. If I want to make the most of my life, ah, this is the way I want to. And this robe, the community offers me a refuse to lead the life in such a way. I have thought about a lot of times, some of my great, great teachers in, in Nepal, they were the chief of the Theravada orders. So someone, after many years, with other many senior teachers, they asked one question. They said, we have one worry. And I said, what is that? They said, what if you have the midlife crisis and you decide not to become monk anymore? We'll lose a lot. (laughs) And I laughed so deeply. I looked, is it really a possibility in my life? And I cannot imagine, really, I don't mean to disrespect, (laughs) but I cannot imagine leading the lay life of a married Asian man in Lumpini. It just wouldn't be possible for me. So the ultimate reality is that I found this way of living and being, I can make the most of my life, that every moment I can work, try and become a better human being. And the other things are mere convention. I learned from so many Dharma teachers, so many streams. I became ordained in Theravada because my teachers were from Theravada. When you learn something from someone, you. you experience immense sense of gratitude because it was their life they lived that inspired you. And you have to carry on the torch in a way. And also, because there's so many wonderful teachers in other tradition, Theravada tradition in Nepal needed someone. I thought, I will volunteer here for the time. Yeah.
0: Hello. Thank you for your time today. Um, I guess my question would be, what goes through your mind and how do you feel just bodily when you, when you take out time in the day to meditate? I understand it's a hard question to answer in a few words. But at what point in your life did you realize that <clears throat> the time that you're putting in meditating daily is now actually... So for instance, I can talk about myself. When I try to meditate, there are a lot of distractions. I can hear sounds, other thoughts coming into my mind. So in terms of just some advice as well as knowing your experience, at what point did you know that you were entering the zone of meditation as such and, you know, getting out of that, just physically closing your eyes and breathing in and out? Um,
1: In short, what we can say is that Before getting on the cushion and meditating and then getting caught up in this game of am I meditating long enough and all this, we need to consider, do I really need meditation or not? When you can experience an urge that I really need this, then the the attitude will change. Then there will be, I need this, and then the patience will emerge. Then 10 minutes sitting won't be terrible. And to understand whether I need meditation is to look into our daily life transactions. When you're having a meeting with someone, when you're learning something, the 10 minutes you're learning something, did you make the most out of it? Or did you have to repeat it? Or did you miss something and you have to study again? How many hours are you losing? How productive are you? When you were talking with your friend, are you, were you receptive enough, present enough to understand what they were really trying to convey? Or did you miss something? When you see these little loopholes in the life, then you need to refresh the memory, then you need to be a little more present. And to do that, sometimes we do have to start by learning to sit on the cushion, sitting with our thoughts alone, going through this process that cannot be taught by talk, but it can only come through experience. Patience with it. Slowly and slowly, you begin to notice that, ha, that little time, dormant time on a cushion, really helps to change. I'm a little bit more present. It won't happen in a day or two, but I'm really a little more present, a little more receptive. I understood the right ideas. And the beauty of that is when it starts to kick in, when it starts to work, it saves so much time. <laughs> you won't be babbling for 20 minutes and they say, I, I give up. You will, say, you will go there and say, it's not working for me. There'll be so much clarity. It will cut your path so short. If you meet someone, you will already know this has been bubbling. Then our girlfriend or someone wouldn't have to come say, I'm so sorry, or would not have to text me that this is not working. You will say, this is not working. I can feel it. It saves so much time. So if you see that this is the need, then maybe you will have more motivation to learn to meditate. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is uh, all the best I can do in short time. It's uh, It doesn't have to be questions only. Someday, next time when I come, if you offer you insights, you'll be lovely. You'll be lovely. Because this is not yet the ultimate reality for me. I'm still learning. But I'm beginning to see this seems to work. And it's joyful to learn from the fellow meditators. When you combine wisdom, it grows. It, It gets darker and enriched. I believe this is Thank you very much, Bjorn, for coming.
0: Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.